So we'll, let me start back in First Timothy a little bit. Um, let me just, like I shared last week, and, and really encourage you um, to sit down at some point. We're going to read, for, we're going to go through First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy. We're going to go in that order. That's not the order in the scriptures. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. Titus was written first before Second Timothy. We'll go in that order. But sometimes just sit down from time to time. It, you can read those three books in half an hour at, at the max. A lot of you can read it in 28 minutes. So, you know, you can read it in about 20 minutes. And then I would encourage you periodically, especially as we're going through 1 Timothy, to sit down and read 1 Timothy. When we get to Titus, to sit down and read Titus. Um, and, and I think it's good, especially in a book like Timothy, just to sit down and read it its entirety. It doesn't take you that long. Uh, I think you're always better served taking 30 minutes one day out of the week than five minutes six days out of the week. Now, ideally, you could take 30 minutes six days or seven days. I assume on Sunday that's your, you come to church, you may not always get it in, but uh, you, should, you should really sit down and read blocks of time. And one of the things that I encourage you to do um, is, you know, you, you, you obviously have the Bible, which is good. A lot of people don't like to write in their Bible in the small print, but you can just make, you know, print out copies. Um, and if you have a, an administrative staff, they can collate and bind it for you. But if you don't, then <laughs> too bad. <laughs> so, uh, and you can do it in English and Greek. But I would just take it out and, and just leave plenty of space so you can write things as you read through it. Just write your thoughts in, in any, any book of the Bible. Now, some of it's hard. You know, you're reading through Ezekiel. You're just trying to stay awake, man. I mean, you're just down in coffee, taking no days, whatever, stay awake through that. But especially in, in the New Testament books, it, it really is good to do that. I think will help you a lot in the process of what you're studying. Now, last week I gave the introduction to the pastorals. They're called the pastoral epistles uh, in, the, in the introduction of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you weren't here, you can go online. Uh, go on our website, fbclascruces.com. Go to media. Go to archives under grow. That's where you'll find it. Uh, and you can go there. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to get probably in 1 Timothy chapter 1, maybe through verse 3 through 12, uh, 3 through 17. As I shared last week, this was probably one of the latter books Paul wrote, probably third from the last, or actually second from the last, however you work it. But he wrote 1 Timothy, taught us 2 Timothy, and then he would, he would be uh, executed by the Romans. Um, he had left Timothy, as we'll see in just a minute, in Ephesus. Um, Timothy was his young protege. And as we'll see, we'll kind of see all the occasions about the letter. And in chapter 1, verse 3, just as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you would instruct certain men or people and not to teach strange doctrines. So, you know, he gave his intro to Timothy, he wrote it, and he said, I want you to remember what I did. I left you in Ephesus so I could go to Macedonia. Macedonia would be where uh, Philippi, Thessalonica were. Ephesus and Asia Minor on the, the coast there, on the western part. Now, Ephesus was a, a tremendous city, and uh, a city just full of religion. Um, Sunday, I'm going to preach about Paul in Athens, and the amount of religion in Athens was mind-blowing. But Ephesus was really the home of Artemis. Um, it, it was a home of so much paganism. It was, it was a, you know, a fairly populated city. It was a busy seaport. It, it was an important city. Paul uh, spent three years there on his journeys, working through that church to get it established. There are five 
books in the New Testament that either deal exclusively or pretty heavily with Ephesus. The book of Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, in a large part of, uh, well, in Romans, when it has that uh, to Romans there, that's just four. And I said five, but at my age, slipping a little bit. Uh, so there's four books that deal pretty heavily with the Ephesian church that is, that is there. And so, um, you know, you, you, you see, this is an important city. And it had an important thing there. He said, I left you there. And he said, so that. Now, the word so that speaks of the purpose of his leaving there in, in that third verse. It translates a little Greek word. It can come up a couple times in our passages today. It's a little clause. We call it a hidden clause. It doesn't really matter to you. But whenever, whenever I'm looking in the Greek and I, and I see that, I know, I know it's important. I'm like, I, I need to see why this is important. And it usually has to do with the purpose or result of something. It's for the purpose of something or the result of something. There's not a huge difference in those two, rarely. He said, but I left you here at Ephesus for a purpose. This is critical to understanding the letter. The letter he wrote was to Timothy, but he knew that Timothy would convey the letter to the church at Ephesus. And he said, you are to instruct, you are to teach, you are to correct, you are to knock them upside the head. Certain people not to teach, teach strange doctors. Now, he's going he's to have two reasons why he left them there, really. The first is not to teach strange doctrines. And, and these doctrines would be unusual, unique teachings. Um, most likely, the people who were at fault for the strange teachings, and I believe, were the leadership in the church. Uh, it was the overseers, the pastors, and the deacons. That's why in the third chapter, Paul gives instructions on what is the qualifications for pastors and deacons because many of them evidently, remember they, they, were, they would break up into smaller house churches and might have, so there might be several pastors, um, kind of like at ours where we have one senior pastor, they may not necessarily have the same thing there. And this is the only book that really gives us any idea of what deacons do. Uh, they're mentioned in Philippians, but they were there to help the church, and they were the problem. And, and so part of the reason you see Paul saying what's expected of them, the only reason that would really make sense is because they're, they're the problem. And most likely, the problem had, and, and while the church at Ephesus was really Gentile, um, they also had Jews there, and the problem seems to be coming from a Jewish element. It, it, it's a little, and some will disagree, and I get it. But what was happening is, as we see, they were teaching doctrines, teachings that were strange, that were, that were not lining up with the truth. Now, Paul had warned them. If you go to in the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter, chapter 20, and maybe verse 27, 29, somewhere in there. Paul had warned them that false teachers would come. He knew it was coming, and false teachers had come. So they had... Bad doctrine, bad teaching, in verse 4 says, nor pay attention uh, to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to useless speculation rather than to advance the plan of God, which is by faith. So I urge you now. So the second thing they did was they gave rise to, or, or they focused on myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't, in, in certain parts of Jewish literature, there are certain books written in the Jewish world in and around this time 
um, that are full of these types of things, mythological in the sense of Greek mythology, but legends that they made up, a focus on genealogies, that would probably be to try to focus on how you can connect back to the patriarchs. It'd be like saying, you know, my lineage goes all the way back to Jacob, to Abraham, however they would do it. And then these legends would come up. And so what was happening in the church, it appears, and and we'll see some more things later on as we go through, is that these men were teaching doctrines that were strange, that were not in accordance with our faith. And they were focusing on things unnecessarily that elevated them quite possibly to a sense of superior status. Now, what we'll see is they were leading people astray. And, and, and later in the chapter, I don't think we'll get to it today, he mentions two people, Hymenaeus, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They, he mentions them uh, as, as being culpable and, and as being uh, a part of this. He's, later on, we'll see that women were being led astray. This, this, is no, this is nothing about any indictment upon women. This is not a sexist statement. You understand that in that world, women rarely got to be a part of any formal religious group or, or, or institution or, or a part. I mean, they, they could worship, but they, they were not elevated. And Christianity elevated women up. And because of that, and women in their elevated role enthusiastically embraced some of the false teaching. The false teachers were men. But, but, but some of the people that were easiest to lead astray what were women? Probably because there were more women in the church than men. That's a lot of, most churches, there are more women than men. And so it would be easy for that to, to happen. And so this was a real problem. And Timothy was left there to fix that problem and to get it under control. He says it gives rise, Paul does, to useless speculation. And it doesn't advance the plan or will of God. Paul, then, in verse 5, says this, but the goal or purpose of our instruction, and he says three things, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Now, notice, he says the goal of our instruction is is to create a, a, a condition of love. Now, we've got to understand that you know, we hear all the time today about people talking about love. You've got to love this person, you know, and, and what they think by love means. And people are always taking the Christian concept of love, and they, and they steal it. They co-opt it. They, they, they take it. They leverage it to say things it doesn't mean. Love is not an acceptance of anything and everything. Paul is saying you've got to reject the teaching and the, the philosophies in, the, he'll say later, the lifestyles of these false teachers. Our cultural view of love will say you can't reject people and you can't reject what they're teaching and you can't reject those things. And Paul says, well, yes, you can. That's not what love is. The word for love, and I've used it in the most common word, agape, and I've shared it with you many times, either on Wednesday night or Sundays, was not a common Greek word. And there's really not many known usages of it outside the New Testament. And no one can really tell you exactly for sure what it means. The most common word was the word eros. We get our term erotic from it, which is never found in the New Testament. And so the New Testament writers, probably because when Jesus, when he spoke Greek, would have done it. But certainly by the Holy Spirit's leadership, took the word agape. And they used it and leveraged it for the Christian faith. 
in the word agape is a sacrificial love. It is the love that puts the other person first. So that when Jesus is quoted in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is the purest, really, definition or picture of love. God so loved that he gave. That's the concept. So what Paul is saying is the opposite of what the false teachers are doing. And understand, false teaching is almost always universally done to elevate the teacher, to draw a following around him or her, to elevate themselves with a superior knowledge. And there is some evidence in 1 Timothy of them thinking that there was a certain superior knowledge attached to their teaching. Uh, All of that is designed to elevate and to put someone over someone else. Christian teaching and preaching is to elevate the other person. I teach you and I preach to you to elevate you, to lift you up. You don't do it to lift yourself up. It is to edify and encourage one another so that we can all be on the same page in terms of what Christ expects of us, so that we can all understand the New Testament together and live it and teach it and proclaim it to others. False teaching elevates self to say, I know what you don't. You need me. You depend upon me. So Paul would say we need to have a love it comes from a heart that is pure. That means it, it, it basically it's, it's, it's undivided. Um, a conscience uh, uh, that is good. The conscience, what you think it would be, uh, the reflection of, of those things. And from a faith that is sincere, not two-faced, not double-faced, not, not like that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, and, and he gives the, the Beatitudes, and uh, he describes the characteristics of the follower of Christ. They, are, they have uh, the poor in spirit, and then he'll talk about them. Um, blessed are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those you know, who are gentle. Blessed, And he'll talk about those who have a, a, a not double tongue, those who have the purity of their life. I mean, it's just, it's just, these are the similar things. A, a sense of who you are. He said, though, some people, verse 6, have strayed from these things and have turned aside to fruitless discussions. The idea of fruitless is that which has no value. They've turned away from the things that I taught you and turned away from these things. So they're, they're involved in a lot of fruitless, pointless discussions. One of the things you see quite often um, in places where there are false teachings is a lot of arguing and debating and trying to get their point across. I, I see a lot today, even, uh, people who really want to engage in arguments and engage in discussions and, and have, you know, want to sit down and pick your brain about this and see what you... Whenever someone comes up to me and says, I want to see what you think about this, I almost always want to say, before you start, I probably don't think about it at all. I probably don't, because what you're fixing to share with me is going to be weird, I can tell you, and I don't think that way. So, so if the first words out of your mouth is you got some doctrines, I'm going to see what you, pick, you think about this. Don't start that way. You might say, I want to ask you a question. Okay, that's good. Then you can ask that weird question and I will give you an honest answer. And if what you believe is wrong, I'll do you a favor and I'll tell you. 
he said they stray for this. He says, here's what, they want to be teachers of the law, even though, and this is part of the reason they're probably Jewish in background. They want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They, 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 they think they're teaching, you know, the Jewish way, the law, but, but they don't understand it. So I'm going to take just a few moments to talk about the concept of the law. Because Paul deals with the law all the time. And the law is, yes, the Ten Commandments and all, and all that goes with it. Remember in the Christian faith, Jesus took the law and he summarized it to two. Love God, love others. And then he just summarized it to one. Uh, right before his death, he said, this is how, you know, this is the new command I give to you, that you love one another. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount does a great job of, of taking the Ten Commandments and all the concept of the law and putting it in a way for Christians to live. I, uh, you know, I, I preached in 20, uh, uh, 2015 or 20, it must have been 2016. I preached on the Ten Commandments one summer, the Ten and I talked about how understanding those commandments, I'm sure all of you were here remember this, um, how, you know, I told you what, what they meant and the importance of those commandments. The commandments were never designed so that if we follow that, we get right with God. They were always for God's people to understand this is how you live. If you were a follower of the Lord, this is how you live. For the old Jews especially, but that's even what it is for us. And then we take it from the point of view of Christ to understand it more. When people tell you that the problem with our country is that we don't follow the Ten Commandments, they simply do not understand the Ten Commandments. America following the Ten Commandments isn't going to save America. Well, it would be good if you did it. I'm not saying that. The problem with America is we don't follow Jesus. The problem with America is not that people don't follow the Ten Commandments. The problem with America is that people don't follow Jesus. It is a cheap, easy and really just, I'll leave it at that, cheap and easy to try to just say, well, if we just follow the Ten Commandments, people be okay. No, people are lost. They don't know Christ. And they live in rebellion. I said it last Sunday. Let me say it again. Don't expect people who are not followers of Jesus to live like followers of Jesus. Most of us don't live like followers of Jesus very well. The law essentially does three things from especially the Paul's perspective. The first thing that it does is it shows the rebellious and it shows the sinner their sin. The importance of the law is to say the way you live is outside of the will of God. And so when, when he talks about you know, they want to be teachers of the law, they don't get this. The law convicts of sin. And in convicting of sin, it hopefully helps the evildoer realize you're outside of God. The second thing the law does is it helps the Christian refrain from sin. Oh, that really is a sin. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't steal because it's a sin. It displeases God. Now, debate what stealing is, but that's, that, that's what it does. And the third thing is that what it does is it, it, it helps to teach us what it is that God expects of those who are his. Now, see, I, I'm not going to remember the Sabbath. The fourth, you know what the Sabbath, Sabbath isn't Sunday. The Sabbath is sundown Friday, sundown Saturday. I'm not going to remember the Sabbath, but what I will do is pick a day of worship. You know, by the way, when we, when we as Christians say the only day to really worship is Sunday, and if you don't worship Sunday, you're breaking the Sabbath. No, 
If you worship Sunday, you're breaking the Sabbath. <laughs> so, if a part, if for some people, tonight is the night they go to church. Whatever that means. It's okay. This is your day. You know, you, you, get, you get a shorter music, that's fine. Um, you get teaching and not preaching, that's fine. You're here to honor and worship God. Okay, that's good. Not, not, I remember when all the fuss about people worship go to church on Saturday night. That's not really church. Sure it is. So he says, here's what I want you to realize in verse 8. But we know that the law is good for those things. If one uses it lawfully. In other words, it's the good if, if, if you do it for that. Now, if you use the law to save you, it ain't going to work, which is what the Pharisees did. Or if you use the law the way the false teachers did, to leverage their false teaching. And so he says, realize the fact that the law was not made for a righteous person. And then he's going to talk about who it was made for. But for, and then he describes two things. Let me just say this. He says, the law is not made for a righteous person. In other words, Technically, if I'm living, if I'm following God the way I should, the law, I don't need the law. I'm good to go. So he's going to describe who the law is for. Now he's going to make kind of, we're going to see a list of things that are coming up in, in verse 9. And, and whenever you see lists, the tendency for a lot is to try to break down each word and understand exactly all the nuances of it. And I get that, and that's fine. I, I tend to think lists are there to be comprehensive, not exhaustive. And, and, it's, and when you see lists, especially Paul, it is the weight of each of them hitting you where the force is. So let me give you an example. The first, the first list he has is, is um, three general statements, two each. He says, it's not for the righteous person, but for those who were lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the worldly. It is for those people living in absolute rebellion against God. And each of those terms piles it on. Now, some, uh, some commentators and scholars think that each of those uh, couplets um, somehow connect to one of the first four commandments about, you know, uh, no other God before me, idols, the Lord's name in vain, and um, uh, worship the Sabbath. I, I, I understand it. I don't argue with them. I think that's a stretch. I think it loses the force if you try to make that work. People who live in rebellion against God, here, here's what they do. They live in rebellion against God because they are lawless. They're without law. In this sense, it's the, the legal aspect or the, or the breaking the law thing. They are rebellion against God. They aren't godly. Uh, they're, they're sinning that this all relates to God. They're unholy and worldly or secular. I mean, that's a pretty good description of someone who is not a follower of Christ in our culture. And the force of all of those terms has a certain weight. I'm not trying to see which of those terms a person, which of those terms applies to a particular person. Okay, I got this guy over here. He's worldly and lawless. I'm looking at them and I'm saying, this all applies to you in its entirety. Then the second list that list deals with how people relate to God. The second list really relates to how people relate to others. And notice what it says. It says, those who kill, uh, those who kill uh, 
their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, homosexual, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and what else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, this is another pile of lists, and it does describe certain things. It describes the taking of life. And I think, obviously, mothers and fathers, uh, some say, well, that relates specifically to the fifth commandment, and I get that. I think there is a special kind of evil for someone who would take the life of their own family. He just summarizes murderers. He talks about those who violate God's plan for sexual purity by talking about the immoral and the homosexuals. If you have the NIV, it says the perverts. I think the NIV says that. Uh, that's a strange translation from the NIV. Normally, NIV does a really good job of making a term, if they're not going to use the exact term, kind of fit. And I don't know why they side away. The term is, the term is for homosexuals. I mean, that's what the term is. And it'd be a whole lot simpler in life if they just, I don't know, left it that way. But it's the concept of men who sleep with other men. Now, please understand something. In the New Testament, homosexuality is a sin. Jesus says it's a sin. Paul writes it's a sin. There's no, there's no getting around it. There's no... <laughs> there is nothing in the New Testament to ever give you permission to think it is anything but a sin, as is adultery, as is fornication, as is, you know, being for men effeminate intentionally. Anything in the New Testament makes it clear outside of a man and a woman in a marriage relationship is sin. Man, woman, married. Everything else is wrong. Now, I, you know, I... I no, our little Methodist friends down the street with the rainbow flags don't agree. That's okay. No, it's not okay. They're wrong. And they're doing a great injustice and disservice to people to trick them into thinking their life is okay with God is a horrible sin that you're going to have to answer for. And the Christian churches that are doing that are also all the denominations doing that are cratering dead, and they should. Let me just be clear. I think any church, any denomination who embraces lies should fall apart. I have, I am not, I don't shed a tear when I hear about those denominations and churches cratering. They should. I rejoice when churches break away from that, as has happened quite often. A lot of churches are breaking away from the denominations who do that. I rejoice with that. Now, that's harsh? Yeah. That's true, though. Now, I may not word it quite like that on Sunday morning. I may be a little more loving and gentle. <laughs> then he talks about slave traders, liars, perjurers. Now, when people say, you know, they don't ever deal with slavery in the New Testament. Well, no, they didn't try to fix slavery because that was... A, remember... Most people were slaves because they sold themselves into slaves. It was an economic decision. I can't take care of myself. If, I, if you will take care of me, I will sell myself and family into slavery. It happened all the time. But what Paul, and, and they're, not, they're not about to try to change the whole economy. Christianity was not going to survive a lot of things. I mean, it would survive, but it was not going to grow if it tried to change every social. By the way, in the New Testament, they don't try to solve all the social problems. They don't solve poverty. You know what Jesus said? You're always going to have the poor with you. You do. 
Doesn't mean we shouldn't help the poor. He's not saying that. He's just saying your primary goal isn't going to be able to solve something that's going to be solved. And so slave trading was a horrible thing. Lying. Um, the Ten Commandments says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And we just generally say lying. It's not what it says. It says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Now lying is wrong as a whole. But <laughs> let's face it, if you're a parent, you lie to your kids the moment you start talking to them. <laughs> and the moment they start talking to you and asking you questions, I know we have a couple of kids here. I'm sure your parents don't lie to them. You lie to your kids. It's just, it's just I get it. This is not talking about that. This is not, guys, when your wife says, does this dress make me look hefty? You lie like a drunk searching for a bottle of whiskey. You lie. Don't be stupid. It's easier to ask God to forgive you than your wife. Never forget that. Single guys, it's always easier to ask God's forgiveness. Don't be stupid. And whatever, <laughs> I can't believe I said that, but it's true. I'm right, though, right? Some guys? Am I right, bro? Doug, you've been married a long time. Am I not right? Thank you. Whatever is contrary to, and so Paul just says this, whatever is contrary to sound teaching. All of the unsound teaching is contrary to the sound teaching. Now, what is the sound teaching? Well, Paul's giving it to you. Let me, let me just say this. And I said something. Don't make our faith hard. There are things we don't understand. I got it. There are some things that are difficult. I know. But the important stuff isn't hard. Jesus was born of a virgin. It tells us that. He rose again from the dead. It tells us that. He died for our sins. It's all that sound. The Bible's from God. You know, I, I, I don't care if a period's in the wrong place. Who cares? I don't care in the Old Testament if, you know, if the exact numbers don't add up. It all's from God. It's good. What I'm saying to you is, don't make it difficult by having lousy teaching. I see lousy teaching all the time. I'm always amazed. I don't know if any of you do it in, our, in your connect groups or Sunday school classes. Probably sometimes. But here's the thing. Sound teaching is what comes from, you know, not this, but you got it, the Bible, the scriptures. That's sound teaching. Stick with that. Don't. Don't try to come up with a good teaching by taking 15 different passages from 15 different books of the Bible and stringing them together to say, prove my point. That happens all the time. It's like they weren't written that. Paul didn't write 1 Timothy to be a companion piece to the book of Isaiah. Don't string them together like they belong. But that God wrote all of it. Well, I, I know that, but he didn't write it for you to take Scissors and glue and cut and paste to come up with something crazy. All of this, I love this verse, is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now get this part. This is so cool. With which I have been 
entrusted. The word entrusted is a variant of the word faith. All the things I'm telling you this is this. It's according to the gospel. In, in, in the word gospel, you know, Evangelion, I, I said this Sunday, whenever you think of gospel in the New Testament, think of Jesus. The concept of gospel is good news, but it's, it's in the Greek, it's connected to people normally. It's either connected, say, to a king or an emperor having a child. The good news is the child. A general winning a battle would bring good news. The good news was connected to the general who won the battle. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is always connected to Jesus. Paul already wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen. That's the gospel to Paul. He says, it's glorious gospel about Jesus. It's the gospel of the blessed God. And he says, I've been entrusted. I have been assigned to keep it, to keep the faith. He said, I shared with you the gospel. Now, Timothy, you take that gospel and you fix the problems at Ephesus. I close with this. Sometimes pastors, we make lots of mistakes, but sometimes we have to realize when there are problems, and the same applies to you, not just to me, but but my sense the pastor. When there are problems in the church and there are teachings that are wrong or things going on that are wrong, I am entrusted to take the gospel of Jesus and fix it. So are you. That is something we are entrusted with, the good news of Jesus. And if you let the good news of Jesus be the centerpiece of your faith experience, you will be okay. But if you stray from that gospel as the center of your faith, you will fall into and probably be guilty of false teaching. Well, I didn't get as far as I wanted, but I got far enough. So we'll see you.